0: I'm Simon from Kent Libraries and this is On The Books, the library show born out of lockdown that talks about all things written word, thoughts, ideas, inspirations and much much more. So sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. On The Books today we have our very own head of service, James Pearson, interviewing Richard Overnon, head of the Bodleian Library, author and originally a man of Kent. We hope you enjoy.
1: Thank you, Richard, for joining us today. Uh, Richard Ovenden has been Bodley's Librarian at the University of Oxford since 2014 and was Keeper of Special Collections and Deputy Librarian before that. He has also held positions at Durham University Library, the House of Lords Library, the National Library of Scotland and the University of Edinburgh. He is the director of the Bodleian's Libraries Centre for the Study of the Book and holds a professional fellowship at Balliol College. Richard was awarded the OBE in the Queen's Birthdays Honours 2019 for services to libraries and archives. And Richard's book, Burning the Books, A History of Knowledge Under Attack, was published at the beginning of September and was also featured as a Radio 4 Book of the Week. The book covers 3,000 years from clay tablets in Mesopotamia to Henry VIII's destruction of the monasteries to book burnings in Nazi Germany, and sadly, the destruction of knowledge since then. It also considers the challenges of preserving our increasingly digital existence. Richard grew up in Kent, in Deal, and it is a real pleasure to welcome him back to the county, be it virtually, this morning. Thank you, Richard. And how are you today?
2: I'm very well, thank you. And absolutely delighted to be doing this for um, Kent Libraries. And um, I come back very frequently to see my family in Deal. And um, it's always a pleasure to be back in Kent.
1: It's great. And uh, of course, we welcome to any of our libraries any time as well. So we'll start off with uh, questions and I'll I'll just introduce the questions that they are questions that uh, our library customers and our staff have put forward. So uh, a lot of interest out there in your book and indeed yourself. And that's where we'll probably start. Can you tell us about your role, which has the unusual title of Bodley's Librarian?
2: Yeah, well, um, I, I'm the twenty-fifth person to be Bodley's librarian, so it was a, a role that was started by our founder, Sir Thomas Bodley, when he refounded the Bodleian Library, uh, or he refounded the University Library in Oxford, I should say, which had actually begun in 1320. So it's a very old institution which um, was devastated in the middle of the 16th century in the Reformation. And then refounded by Sir Thomas Bodley, and he employed the first librarian, um, who was called Thomas James, and he actually uh, retired from his post 400 years ago this year. So we celebrate the 700th year of the of the University Library and the 400th uh, year uh, anniversary of the retirement of the first librarian this year. And- what it really means today is that i'm the kind of chief executive of a big organization we have 28 libraries 40 buildings 800 staff um we acquire a thousand new books every day massive kind of digital operation so it's it's a it's a big organization and we have public facing aspects too, not just a a private, a a, a sort of private library for the University of Oxford. We've never been that. We've always been open to readers from all over the world and uh, today we add to that with um, exhibitions and uh, tours, uh, school groups, um, a whole range of kind of public-facing activity as well as our academic role.
1: And obviously, you know, all of that is a huge demand on on your time. Yet you managed to juggle the two roles of uh, librarian and writer. How do you do so so successfully?
2: Um, well, getting up early in the morning. Um, I'm I've sort of I'm I'm an early riser. So um, this book has really been written pretty much at the weekend. And getting up early and. Um, my definitely, like you 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 should ask the question best to my wife actually, who will have a more kind of slightly uh, pointed comments to make about the impact on on our on our kind of family life over the last two years. But it has been very much a kind of labour of love, so I've I've poured my kind of private passion into it as well.
1: Thank you, and obviously a lot going on, I imagine, around the celebrations this year, given those anniversaries as well. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So we just did um, a big online conference um, called Oxford Library 700 about the role of libraries in, uh, in society. And uh, if you just Google Oxford 700 Library, you will find all the recordings of the presentations because it was a kind of virtual conference. They're all freely available online. So I hope that many librarians and archivists in Kent uh, may find some of those presentations interesting.
1: And I'm sure they'll go and have a look now as a result of hearing that. So thank you. In your book, you say that your education up to the age of 18 was transformed by being able to use the public library in Deal, which of course we're delighted about. Um, what were your strongest memories of using Deal Library? And could you tell us about the impact that the library had for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my my earliest memory is being taken by my mum to the the children's section in the Old Deal Public Library, which I think was in Stanhope Road, and um, I, I, you know, I can I can remember sort of going home with with kind of children's books and, and reading them, and then when the new library, um, where the, uh, the the present library is situated, um, was built, going in there again first, I think uh, children's books, and then. I remember it much more vividly. It had much more powerful impact as a teenager, where I was able to go and borrow fiction books, and so it's really kind of reading more broadly. At first, it was kind of science fiction, so Isaac Asimov and Ursula Le Guin and things like that. I remember the, you know, looking for the yellow dust jackets on the. um, I'm trying to remember the publisher, um, Gallants. Glance science fiction always had those fantastic yellow dust, dust jackets. So I looked for those in the shelves. And then I found, you know, more writers. And it was really just being able to sort of go in there on my own, browse, just try things out. And um, that was incredibly important. What was also important and amazing to me was um, being able to borrow vinyl records. So I'd only, you know, we had one bit of classical music in our house. Um, a very scratchy recording of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, and then actually finding there's loads of other things, really, really amazing uh, music that I could just borrow for free and bring back. And then, you know, broadsheet newspapers, the Times Literary Supplement. And then occasionally I found my way into the local studies room and you know, actually, was able to use it as a place just to work and sometimes do my homework. Or I found interesting sort of aspects of local history that I began to be interested in. So I kind of t- cut cut my teeth as a historian using primary sources, um, you know, 18th and 19th century books about East Kent. Um, and but the whole experience really transformed my own education. It was giving me the power to go and educate myself. And of course the library staff were very helpful and supportive, but it was just that fact that it was free, it was my right to go in and use it. And um I was a absolutely frequent, you know, many times a week visitor to deal public libraries all through my teenage years. Um, and I'm sure I wouldn't be here without them.
1: Uh, Thank you. And it's so reaffirming to hear what a positive impact um, our library services can have. And and it's the same across the country, we know. But, uh, you know, to hear, you know, you say that, I'm sure will inspire a lot of other people uh, to take a similar journey. And it is lovely, you know, the importance of local studies, I think, can't be sort of underestimated in terms of that, that sense of place. And I know you talk about it in your book, that, that chance to sort of discover your place and community history, which I think you um, you know, is is so important, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we have this amazing network of places which care for our local community, its its history, its identity, and you know, we need our local authorities to support. Um, libraries, not just for the kind of broad role of, you know, education and, you know, providing reading matter to our fellow citizens, but that role of maintaining um, local historical uh, resources together with the county county record offices and, you know, local authority-run archives is absolutely crucial, really, really is.
1: And our next question, how does knowledge survive in the internet age? where manipulation and viewpoints based on selective, out of context snippets seem to turn people against scientists, doctors, lawyers, and those that are seen as the keepers of knowledge.
2: Well, um, with great difficulty, I think is the simple answer. I mean, I think it highlights to me the, the, the essential role that libraries and archives are playing in the digital world and that we need to do more and we need to be resourced to do more not only to capture to um through things like web archiving um the 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 original the origins of some of these statements so that they can be used for verification um that, you know you can trace back the provenance of bits of information and find out where they came from and the context in which they were made um, so that's absolutely vital, that libraries and archives capture the web, um, capture social media, capture the source of, these, of this misinformation. But it's also important that we actually record and archive the, mis- the misinformation itself so that we can hold the people who are making those statements to account. And we can kind of preserve what they said and challenge them. They can be challenged in public. That's one of the roles that libraries and archives have for society, is um, as being sort of arbiters of facts and the truth. And I think we need to do. We need to empower libraries and archives. We need to invest in them so that the staff can can perform some of those roles. And some of it, I think, is actually about educating our readers educating the public, educating young people especially in how to manipulate this incredibly treacherous world of online information.
1: Yeah and uh, I, th- I think it's something we, we, we can all see and, and the other phrase that always comes to mind is you know this is the age of the fake news as well and uh, again I think um, libraries play a, a crucial role with our information professionals to to guide people to the right place I think isn't it? Uh,
2: and be able to tell what is what what is fake um, and, and what what isn't. So that that sort of judgment, those kind of critical skills, um, are are part of what li- li- librarians and archivists have been doing for millennia.
1: And long may they continue to do so. So uh, our next question is: Lightbridge's use of social media ethical. Social media has been associated with Covid misinformation, Holocaust denial, hate speech, increases in mental ill health and breaches of data privacy. Are we inadvertently endorsing the exploitation of library users by engaging with it and directing people to it?
2: Well, I mean, I think I, I'm a, I'm quite active on Twitter myself. The Bodleian has... Um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat possibly, um, but we have a, a, a presence on social media. And I think it's important that we do because it gives us, a, a, you know, so much of public life is now played out in, in social media. And I think if the library and archive sector isn't there, then we haven't got a chance of improving the flow of information, and the way that users of social media engage with facts, with the truth, with knowledge. And I think that it's absolutely vital that we are, on the one hand, archiving public statements or the, the activity of, our elected officials, our government employees, our people who are paid by the state on social media so that that becomes part of the historical record. But it's also important that we're using those channels to direct users of social media, to direct our followers to more trustworthy sources of information and to encourage them to use libraries and archives and to value the information sources that they can find there. So I I absolutely agree that it's a, you know, it's a very, very difficult world to be navigating in. But I think if we if we just abstain from it, if we stay away from it, then, you know, we're just letting the, um, you know, the, 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 the lunatics run the asylum, I'm afraid.
1: Thank you. And, and of course, a lot of customers that's uh, who don't use our buildings and our physical services. It might be the only way we can also reach that, that group of Absolutely. as well. Absolutely.
2: And, you know, for many young people, um, you know, they live out their lives on social media. So if we're not there, we're not going to encourage the coming generations to, to think that libraries are there for them, too.
1: We need to embrace the risk, I think, don't we? We do. Technology is changing very quickly, and we all know that every day. Do you think in the future some knowledge may become inaccessible as the technology becomes obsolete?
2: Yes, is the short answer to that. I think it's a there's a, a huge risk that that's happening. It's happening right now, and it's happening partly because... Um, th- you know, the, the world of technology is moving so fast that it's difficult to keep up um, with the, you know, new formats, new, new technologies, new operating systems, um, you know, the concept of technological obsolescence, um, which is kind of built into the, the commercial aspects of the technology industry. Means that the memory institutions, in particular libraries and archives, have to work very, very hard to keep up, and it's a very costly thing to do when we're already um, struggling to, f- to fund the preservation of, if you like, the analog era—so paper, papyrus, and parchment—and to keeping our kind of current services to users um, in our communities going. So adding this layer of digital preservation is um, an absolute the major challenge to our our industry to our profession but i think we're we're doing fantastic work in, in addressing it so um, i'm one of my other hats is as president of the digital preservation coalition which is a kind of umbrella organization of libraries archives museums even bodies like the nuclear decommissioning authority uh, the world bank um, the smithsonian institution we're all kind of clubbing together to help um, sponsor um, research in how to preserve digital information, how to train our staff, how to advocate in the kind of legal and policy arenas. So I think there are, you know, our, our profession has done fantastic work. We, we are really trying our best to get a grip on the challenge um, So many of us have digital preservation teams, we have invested in, um, you know, uh, digital repositories, workflows, uh, training our staff. What we lack is the right funding to be able to do this on the scale um, that we need. And I think that is, I think, the major challenge that faces us. And why in my book and elsewhere I argue for a memory tax on the big technology companies, um, who are of course creating the problem um, by creating these 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 um, platforms in which um, we engage, and you know they have such vast resources that they're able to you know evolve their technologies so rapidly. But with a with with extra funding from a memory tax, I think we could properly invest in the institutions that society has created to preserve knowledge for its own sake. And they are, of course, libraries and archives.
1: Thank you. Um, And a related question um, from a a customer. So much is uh, instant now that they worry that there won't be diaries, letters and photos available for libraries to be custodians of in the future. Do you still feel positive that we will continue to save details of our history so it doesn't get distorted or indeed lost in the future?
2: I I am more positive about that. I mean, you know, many libraries, we're we're one of them, uh, collect personal digital material. So the kind of equivalent of you know, the paper diaries and correspondence that, that that we have. So, you know, for example, we have the archives of seven prime ministers in the Bodleian, and, um, you know, the current prime minister will be creating his archive using email, and, um, you know, his constituency has a website, and he, you know... Uh, will use other you know he will have digital pictures of his family i'm sure so in order to to deal with that we have to have the infrastructure the staff have to be have to have the skills and be trained in dealing with those issues but we already are so um we are already creating digital personal collections of that kind emails blogs um You know, we're taking snapshots of um, politicians' hard drives. And Barbara Castle, the former um, cabinet minister, Labour MP and peer, she left us her archive, which had 500 boxes of papers, but two PCs. Unfortunately, she didn't leave us the passwords for the PCs, so we had to hack into them. Um, And that's just an example of how we're dealing with that issue. So I'm more optimistic about it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's easy, it doesn't mean that we don't face big challenges in doing it, particularly where the personal archives, I think, are now being spread across platforms on social media. So even, you know, I, I don't know, uh, James, how... how how many social media platforms you use, or whether you use things like Dropbox, whether you've got images on your Facebook account, or whether you have, um, you know, a Gmail or Hotmail uh, email accounts. But, you know, our collections, our private archives, if you like, are now spread across many, many platforms. They're not just on our PCs. So, um, we're having to kind of grasp with those realities now um, as well. But we're, you know, there's so much kind of research and projects going on in the library and archive community around the world that we're all learning from each other, sharing um, best practice and, and actually getting on with the task of, of of saving that kind of material.
1: Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, we all have sort of multiple sort of social media channels. We? We've got our phones, we've got the PCs and... And then photos are different now, aren't they? Whereas you used to print them all out and put them in albums and things. You know, we now all got them on drives, on computers, and things. It, it, it you know, it is interesting to see how what we keep has evolved over the years. And and the challenge, as you say, is is to now adapt to that new uh, way of working. But it is just masses of different things as opposed to sifting through papers, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So the Black Lives Matter movement has also prompted much debate about the diversity or lack of it in collections held in museums, libraries and other cultural institutions, as well as in this country's publishing output. How do you think libraries can influence positive change for the future?
2: Um, well, that's that's a very good, very kind of topical um, uh, issue to raise. And it's one here in Oxford which we feel very... Um, keenly because we have um, (coughs) our own institutional legacy with colonialism and empire through, in particular, through Cecil Rhodes. So of course we have famously a statue of Cecil Rhodes um, on the outside of one of the colleges, the college where he was an undergraduate Oriel, which has become the focus of um, uh, the... The uh, one uh, aspect of the Black Lives Matter movement here in the UK called "Roads Must Fall," which actually began in South Africa, where where Rhodes made, made his his fortune, and um, so we 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 face these issues all, all the time. Our students and our staff are very very concerned about it, and we recognise that we need to do more to address it. Um, In the Bodleian, our own collections are already diverse and some of that has been because of Oxford University's engagement with empire and colonialism itself. So some of the collections we have are because Oxford sent its students off to, you know, run the empire and to be administrators or doctors or missionaries or whatever. So we have their archives here as well. And I think what we have to do is to... Both address the past of our own collections and make sure that they're uh, catalogued appropriately. That we recognise where they've been; um, those collections have been formed through the results of colonialism, or where they've been um, engagement with slavery. Um, that we need to be honest with the past and to reflect that in our metadata uh, to encourage different kinds of analysis of those collections. Um, And so, for example, we've now created a visiting fellowship in Black history, which is encouraging people to come and re-examine collections that we may have had for many years. We have Cecil Rhodes' own archive here in the Bodleian. So, and it's it's there for critical study um, with bringing new and different contemporary viewpoints to those uh, historical collections. But I think we also have a role to play in acquiring the published output from parts of the world, which we're now in the university studying more actively. So contemporary publishing from uh, uh, diverse communities around the world, but also we need to be collecting the outputs of diverse communities here in the UK. And that's where I think kind of local studies, collections, local archives are absolutely vital because, most of our communities around the UK are now div- much more diverse than they used to be or we recognise that diversity and celebrate it and we should be making sure that our local studies collections actually reflect those cultural lives in the written records that we, uh, we, we, we collect and archive in those, in those institutions. And we need to be encouraging those local communities to think of the libraries as partners in celebrating their cultural, um, cultural life and their cultural legacies. Um, and so um, actively engaging with them, being part of um, allowing new different narratives to be both recorded and told um, is, is an absolutely key part that libraries and archives can play.
1: What do you feel are the greatest challenges and opportunities for libraries in the UK currently?
2: Well, I've 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 gone on about funding already, so I won't talk too much more about that, but I think it is an absolutely critical challenge. I think there's one I'm just picking on that last point that we were discussing about Black Lives Matter. Um, one critical point is actually our own workforce in libraries and archives and making that more diverse and encouraging more applications from diverse communities to come and join the library sector to give us the skills, the viewpoints, the perspectives that we need to be more reflective of society um, in the UK today. Um, so that's that's one challenge. Um, I think another challenge is really the range of tasks that libraries and archives have to do, whether it's the public library sector or the kind of research and academic sector, which I spent most of my career in, um, all of us have a much bigger range of tasks that we have to do than when I came into the profession. So, you know, we've got to, you know, we have the digital as well as the analog, we have local as well as remote users. We have the different kind of impacts of technology, whether that's the way that knowledge is created that we have to acquire and preserve and make available or or it's how we deliver our services using those technologies. Um, So I think maintaining a workforce who are skilled and equipped and trained uh, constantly retraining and refreshing their training is, is an absolutely kind of key, key task. And I think there's a, a bigger kind of meta challenge that we face, which is one in which it's um, many of the kind of politicians and decision makers and funders have a kind of assumption that libraries and archives are I- irrelevant, that they're, um, you know, everything's available online. And so continuing to advocate for the role that archives play and getting into the weeds of what is happening in Kent libraries or happening in the public libraries or the kind of small special libraries around the country, as well as the larger institutions like, like my own, is a constant challenge. So that advocacy, that raising awareness of the absolutely crucial role that we've played. I think, I think the pandemic has helped to highlight how important libraries are, how how much needed they are, how responsive they've been to the challenges that society has faced over the past seven or eight months. But we need to kind of repeat and get stronger and more effective in our advocacy as library leaders. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, actually, is to try and make a contribution to changing that dialogue, changing the conversation about libraries and archives.
1: No, well, thank you for that, because as I say, I I think we we, we all feel that question, don't we, as to how we keep renewing the the, the library offer, how we continue to highlight the the important role of of archives. I mean, we're very lucky in Kent got fabulous um, archive uh, collection here. Um, And it it sort of feels there's that ongoing journey, really, to keep saying, actually we've got a role and actually it's even more important with the pandemic that um, actual process. I mean, we're still obviously going through the pandemic at the moment, but there's a lot of personal and community healing, I think that we'll need to go through. And it sort of feels that actually we can play a sort of center stage role on, on that in terms of it come that day when people and communities can come more together um, that there is that opportunity that there is that space where actually diverse communities can come together and, and have a sort of touchstone point really and, and thank you for the sort of work you're doing advocating for us because as I say we all need we all need to highlight it particularly this moment in time when when things are, are so difficult
2: yeah Yeah, and I'd encourage anyone listening to this to uh, ensure that the next time you encounter one of your uh, local councillors or your MP or any kind of paid officials, that you point out to them how important it is to maintain funding for libraries and archives in Kent um, and, uh, you know, wave a copy of my book at them or just sort of shout out about how critical libraries and archives are for um, our communities in, in the county of my
0: birth.
1: Thank you. And your book talks about libraries and collections of knowledge which have been destroyed you know throughout the last 3,000 years regrettably. If you had a time machine, is there one particular library or collection that you would choose to visit?
2: That's a very difficult question. That's a very difficult question. I mean, I think there are actually quite a few that I'd like to go back to. Um, I think the one that the story in my book that most inspired me was um, from the Holocaust and it's in Vilna or what is today called Vilnius, the, the capital of Lithuania, um, at the time called Vilna, where um, it was a great book town. It had many libraries, um, but it had a, a, a very important library and archive that was started in the 1920s to document everyday Jewish life in Central and Eastern Europe. And it was an institution called YIVO. And um, my book tells the story of how it was attacked and destroyed by the Nazis in the Holocaust, but how a group of uh, librarians and archivists who called themselves the Paper Brigade rescued many documents and books, hid them, risked their own lives to do so, only to find that the communists, after the Nazis were, um, you know, forced out of Lithuania, um, tried to do the same. And it was a Lithuanian librarian who, had to re-save these these documents. So if I had the time travel, I'd like to go back to the 1920s when YIVO was first started and to see the kind of spirit of those pioneering archivists and librarians trying to capture everyday life of their own community. and to kind of experience it before the devastation that was to come. Because YIVO ex- continues to exist. It's now in New York in 1939. The, the director of the institution just happened to be outside of Lithuania. So he was able to kind of relocate it to New York. And it's, it's an amazing institution today. Um, and I've been and visited it and seen the collections that were saved. But to see it before that devastation happened would be an amazing thing.
1: Thank you. And I appreciate it. it's a tough question. Obviously, if we, you did have a time machine, hopefully you'd be able to visit all the others as well. So uh, but <laughs> thank you for picking out your top one. No um, now, I uh, appreciate you poured a lot of your uh, passion into the book uh, you've just published. Are there any plans for a future book after this one?
2: Well, it's 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 too soon for me. I, I can't really um, find the headspace to think about that. Um, just actually keeping, um, you know, my day job is all-consuming at the moment, in particular, and um, we've got uh, the the academic year just beginning and all the challenges that the the, the COVID nineteen environment brings to running running a big library service like this. Um, and then doing events like this, trying to promote my book, is just keeping me full. But I do, I do, um, I, I there are some germs of ideas. But it will be again around if I do write another book, it will be about uh, libraries and society. Um, but um, I'll, I'll keep my powder dry just now because I haven't really formed those ideas properly.
1: I think fair enough. But you've given us a, a few little inklings there, so thank you. And equally. Um, I wish uh, you and the university all the best for this uh, academic year of what is a year like no other for all of us, I think it's fair to say. So all the best to that. That concludes our questions, Richard, and I just wanted to really sort of uh, say thank you so much for your time and also giving everyone such a wonderful insight into your world and also some of your thinking and ideas supporting the library and archive sector. So. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Well thank you very much, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I wish I was um, holding this uh, in person with you in Kent itself but I'd um, just like to repeat my huge debt of gratitude to the Public Library Service in Kent and in particular to Deal Public Library, um, you know, what a, what a great institution and uh, long may it flourish.
1: Thank you, and I know you've donated a copy of your book uh, to Deal Library as well, with a, a lovely inscription inside. And I, I know that the team will be delighted uh, to receive that and, and put that on the shelves uh, to help improve the diversity of the library collection. I just your, uh, you know, it would have been ideal to be able to do um, this interview down in Deal Library. I think that would have been really nice, but uh, hopefully, as I say, in some future time, not so far away, we might be able to do that and perhaps meet uh, at Deal Library. That would be uh, wonderful. And you're welcome, of course, at any time. So thank you.
2: Thanks a lot. Look forward to it.
0: Well, you got to the end. Well done. Richard's new book, Burning the Books, is available now at the library and everywhere you'd expect to find a good book. For more information on our digital services, visit kent.gov.uk libs linked in the description below. Or you can keep up to date with our social media by following us on Facebook, also linked in the description below. I'm Simon from Kent Libraries. This was On The Books. Have a great day and goodbye.